I told you last week that we were starting a, a new series this week. I'd been wrestling with it for a long time. And I told the staff why I was doing it. Uh, I'm going to the Gospel of John, which we did early in my ministry here. I love the Gospel of John. I know many of you do too. But I said through this COVID thing, uh, I have, though my case is not nearly as extreme as many, uh, I came face to face at my age with my transience. And uh, I just realized, you know, not that I hadn't realized it before, that this doesn't go on forever. And one of these days, I'm going to go, whoop, out of here. But if there's one message I want to leave behind, whenever that is, whether it's five minutes, five years, or 15, uh, I want I want us to come face to face with Jesus Christ. That's what John did. He... Uh, he gave us a, a summary, a gospel that's unlike the other gospels, that points out the glory, the grandeur, the, the infinite magnificence of Jesus Christ. Something that we usually do not see in our music, we usually do not see in, the, in our church life. And he said he wrote it at the end of the book in order that, and I'm paraphrasing, in order that you may know him, have an encounter with him, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and be saved. That was his evangelistic purpose. That's the reason so often when somebody is born again, they come to Christ, people will say, where should I start in the Bible? And you point them to the Gospel of John. It's a great place to go. And so we're going to do that. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John the first 18 verses are a prologue, kind of like a preface. John says, at the end of the day, this is what we learned about the one with whom we walked and talked and touched for these three years. And it's magnificent. It's simple, and yet it is profound. Talk about somebody in my position. You come to a text and you say, this is beyond me. There's no way I can do it justice. We just try to do what we can do. But if you want to know Jesus Christ, right here we start. So let me read the first five verses. We can only take it off in small chunks. Can't swallow any more than that. In the beginning, you notice anything there? How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John comes along and says, let me expand on that. In the beginning, God created the heavens on earth. And he says, in the beginning was the word. What on earth does that mean? And the word was with God and the word was God. Now go down to verse 14. And the word, whoever, whatever the word is, became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's he talking about? Jesus, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll get to that in its time. So when he says word, the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos was with God. 
And the Lagos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. What's that? All things came into being through him. You, the birds, the trees, the fields, the flowers. All things came into being through whom? Jesus. Nothing came into being that has come into being without, apart from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not get it, does not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God. That begins the next section. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, links boldly the one who he identifies as the Word with the God who initiated creation itself by the use of identical phraseology in Genesis 1. The parallel is striking. What follows here will explain the beginning or origins of all things. And that's in contrast to modern science, which tries to obscure the whole origin with its nonsensical theories of origin and make theories that make no sense except to the utterly blind. So let's start with the premise of Genesis 1, amplified by the premise of John 1 through 5, and it clarifies the mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here, that member of the Trinity, whose role it was to set everything in motion, to initiate the divine will, the executive will, that one is designated as the Word, W-O-R-D, What's that mean? Why would John sound so philosophical, so heavy, so reachy, so out there somewhere? Let me explain that. The person of the Trinity that we know to be the Son who became flesh and entered the world under the cover of humanity, John 1.14, which I read to you, is the one whom we know as Jesus, the Son of Man. How could that be? How could a God so infinitely great, how could a God so transcendent be contained in a package so small as a human being? Such a mystery of the invisible God to whom nothing is impossible. Now, yeah, pastor, there's something there that's bothering me. Why is he called the word? I didn't just say in the beginning was the Son of God. Why is he called the Word? I love that. I'm going to tell you why. I get hold of that. He who is called the Word is the one who is the voice of God. That's Jesus. The voice of God, the very expression of the God, very expression of who God the Father is and what his will is. That's why he's called the Word. He is the very embodiment of the mind, the divine mind revealing itself. He is not just a medium of divine revelation. He is not just a vehicle of the truth, as were the prophets and apostles. He is in himself 
the very direct and immediate voice of God. Therefore, he is called the Word, the Word. You know, you've been out somewhere. You're waiting on somebody to show up and kind of tell you what's going on. And somebody says, hey, 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 here comes the Word. They're talking about some executive who's coming up. They're going to give you the Word. Well, Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the Word through the Spirit. He is in himself the very direct and immediate voice of God, the Lagos. He is the embodiment of the truth, that is, the perfectly faithful manifestation, not just an imperfect reflection of the moral being of God the Father. Let me show you that explicitly stated in two other places. Let's go to Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It'll be up here. Paul put it this way. He is the image. We're talking about the word Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. When you talk about in the beginning, if you don't get this, you don't get it. And most people don't get it. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. If it is, he's behind it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The word who became flesh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, I think. I used to sit in my office. I get a little stupid sometimes. Look down the parking lots. I see all these cars go whiz, whiz, whiz up and down cruise way. We live on a globe and I just wonder why they don't all go zipping off into space. I mean, you're here on the edge of a globe. In him, all things hold together. Gravity. He is the creator. It all holds together. That's the reason everything doesn't come apart. All right, let's go now to Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers, in the, to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, variety of ways, in these last days, the writer to the Hebrews says, has spoken to us, in his Son, the Word, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Wow. All of a sudden, do you get kind of a sick feeling? I do. Our country and Western Jesus. Terrible. So many of our Songs and hymns we sing about strumming about Jesus doesn't quite make it, does it? When you say Jesus, you're saying a mouthful. John, moved by the Spirit, breaks it all out to us. He gives us a fuller picture of the one who came under the form of a man into this world, conceived and born as a sinless human being of the Virgin Mary in a stable and a rinky-dink village of Bethlehem of Judea. 
He came to redeem the human race, that's you and me, from the plague and the guilt of sin in an unprecedented and never-to-be-surpassed demonstration of the pure love of God for all who would receive him. And he came to reveal to us in the flesh the character and the will of God as nothing else ever could. It's an almost incomprehensible, we can get parts of it. It's almost an incomprehensible mystery. And it's a miracle that simply blows the mind and goes right over the heads of those who do not believe. The word, that word, the word is supremely authoritative, irresistible and creative. On the one hand, it's life-giving. On the other hand, it's death-dealing. If he says you die, you die. And it's decisive. Let's read Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God, ultimately the word of God is who? Jesus. Ultimately the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I've got up here a book. It's got a cover. It's tattered. It's torn. We call it the word. This word came through him, through holy men of old. And this word is why we preach it. I have to ask myself, people will sit out there and get the glazed look, the donut look. You're teaching the word. But I'll tell you why we do it. It's because I realize, because he told us that the word of God is organic. It is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. It gets down there and digs around, convicts, convinces, converts. It does stuff that I could never do. I'm just an echo. A pitiful one sometimes at that. It pierces like nothing else of the joints and the marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Sometimes people will actually get mad at a preacher. They said he was talking about me. It's the word. And it gets down there, pokes around, and says, you're wrong, you know. What you're thinking is not right, you know. They come to a service and they want something feel good. They want to hear jokes. They want to hear a lot of stuff that has no place. And we'll get mad and walk out and never turn, come back again. But it's because of the Word of God. That's why we preach it and preach it relentlessly. It is different than any other thing ever written because it's conveyed through the Word, through His Spirit, a holy men of old in place right here. It's an amazing thing. It's like yeast. You put it in, put a little water, what happens? It just blows up. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of all those things, able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He's behind it all. Within the Godhead, the Trinity, I want you to notice verse 2. The Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. That means, that points to the eternality of the Logos. There never was a time when the Son of God did not exist or operate. Note the unity or coexistence of the Word. There was never a time when the Word was 
independent of the triune God, sitting on the sideline in the councils of the Godhead. Note the deity. He was with God. There's the harmony. There was never a time when this one identified as the word was not in his own being full-fledged deity. He was God in every sense of the word. Within the Trinity, and you remember this from three Sundays ago, within the Trinity, there is complete unity and harmony, complete. There's no differentiation. There's no variance. There's difference in roles, but they're all together. There's not a hint of dissonance. The ultimate definition of the terms, as well as the perfect expression of community between the members of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Godhead, the Trinity, is the ultimate example of what creation would be at all levels had not sin and Satan intruded, which God allowed to disrupt and destroy what God had created as perfect and called it its good. That is what good means. Genesis. And God saw it and said it was good. Everything that should be united is united. Everything that should be harmonious is working in unison. And everything that should be functioning differently is doing so. When all is rightly related to its creator and functioning in its proper role in its appointed sphere, that's what good means. What will be when in the end God restores in Christ through his spirit everything in perfect unity, harmony and complementarity and community to our broken world when God restores that. The defiantly wicked and all that offends his holiness will at last be expunged from this now broken planet. And man, is it broken. I don't know about you, but I think I know about a lot of you. You look at what's going on and you say, is this crazy or what? Where are people's minds? Where are their heads? I was watching this last election unfold. You know all that's going on in our city and other cities. Murders, murders, murders every day. You look at car crashes every day. Just, you hardly hate. What is going on? And then I was listening to all these politicians. One ad after another. We're going to be on top of climate control. The climate we need controls in the streets. And hardly anybody is saying dip. You say, is this, is this population crazy or not? The things that are madness out there, they're not saying anything about. The things that don't matter, the yak, 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 yak. And the things they can't do anything about, they go on and on about spending all your money and all of mine. It's crazy. It's madness. Just utter madness. Verse 3. Note that the word is the mediator of all creation. 
It's through him, the text says. All came into being through him, apart from him. The Father's the executive of the Trinity. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing that of all that was created came into being apart from him. You get that? Nothing. Nothing except sin. He allowed it, but he did not create it. Right there's a signal in the beginning. You start with in the beginning. Fill in the predicate. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where it all started. Don't worship creation, as do so many of the environmental strength. Worship its creator. In the beginning, God, through the Son, created the heavens and the earth. It ought to be clear to every person sitting in this room that in the beginning, God through the Son created the heavens and the earth. A grand and infinite intelligence orchestrated it all. The only explanation that makes sense of all we see and know, our human capacity to believe utter lies when we hear them repeated often enough, like the idea that gender is a self-determined choice. How could any sane person believe that? That hasn't been believed for thousands of years of human existence. And all of a sudden here, the latter part of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, we're enlightened. And we believe that garbage. Human beings can be taught to believe anything if the right people say it often enough in the right places. You can't be serious. And yet many of them have degrees up to the kazoo. A degree of stupidity. But you start that sentence in the beginning and you finish it in the right way. Genesis 1.1, you finish it as John does. And Genesis 1-5, through you finish it, you expand it out that way. Then all of a sudden you know what's going on in the world. You get it. There is no theory that we cannot bring ourselves to believe. This, Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis John 1 through 5, that's the anchor to human sanity and salvation. Verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Note that life itself has its source in Jesus. It did not accidentally and spontaneously spring from some primordial soup. Now it takes more faith than I could possibly imagine. This eyeball up here is so complex. Can you imagine it just gradually developing? On and on. And yet we're idiots for believing this. I know who the idiots are. And and in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light has its source in him. It did not accidentally and spontaneously spring, I say, from some primordial soup. Light. What does it mean by light? The truth about things that ultimately matter, 
about things on which hinge the issues of life and death, happiness or hopelessness. They all emanate from him to mankind. He's the fountainhead and the treasure of all true wisdom and indispensable knowledge. It all begins with him. Verse 5. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Means more than that. Did not overtake it. The light of God, the light of Christ, always shines in darkness. God never leaves himself without a witness, even in the darkest times. There's always light wherever people are willing to see it and follow it out of their tunnels of darkness. The Lagos, the word, is the source of light, just as the sun is the source of physical light illuminating the earth. As hard as Satan tried and still tries to manipulate his human agents and their myriad and minions, darkness did not manage and is still unsuccessful in snuffing it. Greek word has that force, katalambano. There you have it. The predicate of in the beginning was. Miss that and you have missed the story. And you must settle for human mythology. Passed off under the name of science. Science is a good thing. Scientology is a terrible thing. And that's what we've got posing as science today. You have to settle for religious mythology. Don, take us to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God, and boy, we're saying it is revealed, is. He's not talking about in the future. Right now, it's subtle. It's powerful. The wrath of God is revealed right now, right now, right now. Revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's what they're doing. Get out, get out of my sight. Get out. Don't get in this school. Get it down. Don't let it in this university. No, don't let it in this government. No, no, no. Keep it down. Keep it down. Suppress it. Don't let that light out of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Oh, he is the light. And he sees that the light gets in some measure down inside. Do you know why people are so mad? Well, this is a simplistic explanation. They're so mad. They're so angry. Do you know why they want to get in the face of Christians and the church and the gospel? They're wanting to say, shut up, shut up. My conscience is screaming, don't judge me. That's the spirit of God. Judge me means I don't want to feel condemned. Because the truth is shining. It's down there where they want it or not. They're so angry. It's evident within them. How do we know that? The writer says, for God made it evident to them. Let's go on. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. He didn't say dimly. There's a time, at least, an athe- a person can talk him or herself into being an atheist. They do it all the time. 
They can tell themselves a lie and tell themselves a lie and tell themselves a lie because it's a lie they need to believe. And so they can keep telling themselves, grab hold of this little artifice and that little evidence and put it all in there and stack it up and make a case there is no God. But everything tells them differently. <laughs> These things about God are understood through what has been made. You can't go out there. One of our gals was telling us about showing a, a film to our little Chinese students. And they wound that thing up and those kids went, wow. Wow. Being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse. There's not a person out there who does not know God, does not walk with God, who has an excuse. Not one. God said that. The Spirit of God said that. The Word said that. Go on. Next verse. For even though they knew God, this is what's happening still today, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. That's today and the past. And their foolish heart was darkened. You can talk yourself into lies that darken the heart. Go right on. Professing to be wise. Oh, that's our generation. They became fools. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and crawling creatures. All over the world you got that stuff. Therefore God gave them over to the lust, the desires of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among themselves. You look at what's going on. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. Oh, there you go. Who is blessed forever, the creature. Amen. There's how we got to where we are today. The light is mediated through the word and the word, his revelation, living and written is what is still out there and they've not been able to snuff it to this day. Tried. Not going to. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Had a guy ask me, a doctor in fact, the other day, who hardens the heart of men so that they're blind and stupid? I know I'm using harsh terms, but I mean them. They are harsh. God uses the same harsh terms. Stupid and idiotic. How do they get there? Well, he says, is God responsible or is man responsible for the hardness and blindness? I said both. I've said this before. I mean, God never takes a spiritually willing and responsive heart and turns it into impenetrable rock. But as we see in the case of Pharaoh in the Old Testament in the times of Moses, God firmly fixes trees in the way they are bent to the prevailing wind. You go to the coast, you see some trees, and here they are. All their branches sticking out, the winds just blow them and blow them this way. That's like the influences of culture. They just blow people and blow them this way and that and then finally they're fixed in that position. <clears throat> That's the way it is with the spiritual nature of man. 
the influences of culture are such. They just bow to them. They just bend to them. And finally, God fixes them in place. They harden their hearts, and God fixes them finally. And that tree's not going to turn around and blow that way, barring a miracle. Now, there's no thought in my mind, if somebody hears an unbeliever, there's no thought in my mind that I'm capable through any intellectual power or prowess to flip that around. Can't do it. Nobody can do it. But his word through his spirit, God sends forth in his elective grace, giving sight to the blind and calling people out of darkness and leading them into the light of his son, into the way, the truth, and the life. I don't sweat. I don't yell. I do sometimes beat my hand. We don't mop our impression brow, brow as if all the energy we can muster will make the difference. It won't. I know that. But when the Son, the Word, speaks through His Spirit, His creative Word, He breaks down that blindness, removes the cataracts, causes some to see their sin and their hopelessness and the futility of their present life. And He moves you to bow your knees before Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there is no hope. In the beginning, what? It's wonderful for those who can answer that question. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Finish that sentence correctly. You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, we say with sadness, you're not far from the bowels of hell. Take note in the beginning. Start right there. And you're ahead of the game. Most of the world does not start right there. And that's the reason we get so far behind the game. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the passage the Spirit of God has put before us is deeper, higher, broader than I can get my head around and even our people. But the Spirit of God, your Spirit can mediate your Word to us in such a way that we are edified, we are enlightened, we are built up and strengthened. And we pray that we'll emerge from this passage despite the weakness of the messenger. We'll emerge from the influence of this passage with a higher view of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there have been those in the past who've said your God is too small. We would affirm that and say that our Christ is too small. We pray that you would strengthen us in a deeper understanding and conviction of who he is. And we pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know him, that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts and in his elective grace draw them to him, break down the darkness, break, break down the blindness, and bring them into a saving knowledge 
of that one whom we know as the Word. In his name we pray, amen.